It's good to see you. You all sounded good this morning. Turn to your neighbor and say, you sounded good. There you go. There you go. Y'all ready for a sermon? Yeah? So uh, last summer, Lindsay and I had a chance to go up to Ohio and visit the town where we kind of started our family together. You know, we, uh, we met down here. We dated down here, but then right after we got married, Lindsay joined me up in, up in Ohio where I served at a church, and man, we, that's where our life started, you know? Uh, it was really cool getting to drive the kids around and kind of show them, you know, where, where our family began. In fact, here's a picture of us standing in front of our first home. We cute, right? It's our first home together, a little one-bedroom apartment. We only had one closet, one bathroom. We got to know each other very well uh, in a hurry. You know, going back to, to where our life together started, kind of had me all in my feels, right, as they say. You ever had a chance to do that? Like to go back? You know, go back and, and, and visit maybe a place where, where something started for you, an important season, you know, maybe, or it was a, a really important season of your life in like college. I know for a lot of people, it's like you step foot on that college campus and all of these memories come back, right? It can be really good for us, can't it? has this way of kind of stirring us up, kind of recentering us. In fact, you know, uh, Lindsay and I, you know, our, our, our life actually started down here. It's where we dated. You know, I lived here in Columbia. She, uh, she lived up in Abbeville. She worked in Greenwood. And so we would meet up sometimes halfway in Saluda for a little smoochy smooch at this Mexican restaurant. We still drive by this restaurant every time we go to see her parents. I'm always like, hey, you want to do some reminiscing? You know, <laughs> didn't work. Oh, but, but going back, right, it, it has this way uh, of helping us remember maybe important things that we forgot, right, like to recenter us. And that, that sort of feeling, that a feeling of going back, of, of getting in touch with how things started, remembering things that we may have forgotten, the passage that we're going to get into today, it kind of does that to me. It stirs up similar feelings. If you're just now joining us, we've been spending our time working through the New Testament book of Philippians. And y'all, we in chapter 2. Yeah? How about that? Of course, this uh, book, it's a letter. It's written by this guy named Paul uh, to this church in Philippi that he helped to start. And Paul's in prison. He's writing with chains on him. Essentially, he's been identified as an enemy of the state because of his insistence that Jesus is Lord. Remember, in the first century, there was already a Lord, and it was Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That was a popular greeting in the first century. And, and Paul, these first Christians, would insist, no, 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 there's, there's a better Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he's writing to the church for basically three reasons. A little recap here, right? He's writing, on the one hand, to thank them for a gift because they've provided for him in a time of need. He's also writing in order to speak into this sort of conflict that's in the church that's causing a lot of division, right? There's these two women. They're not getting along. You can read about it at the very end of the book. He just sort of calls it out. But there's a little bit of a, a, a tension in the church. But he's also writing to encourage them. Because it turns out some of the same trouble that's gotten Paul in the prison is starting to come their way as well. And so he's writing them to, to stay the course. But here in chapter 2, Paul inserts what many scholars believe to be a sort of hymn or like a poem or even perhaps an early form of a creed. If you look down in your Bible at this passage, you'll notice the structure sort of changes, right? It's not paragraphs anymore. It starts looking like something you'd read out of the book of Psalms or Proverbs. It's poetic. 
right? And there's all sorts of debate. You know, did, did Paul write this, or is this something that was already circulating in the church? I'm of the opinion that he didn't write this. You see, it's not Paul's style to just break out in poetry, right? Now, he has a habit of quoting people. He quotes uh, things in the Old Testament a lot. He quotes other popular philosophers uh, or poets of his day, but he usually doesn't just sort of like riff off the cuff on his own. Most scholars actually agree this may have been one of the earliest creeds to start circulating among the church. We've got to understand, this goes way back. I mean, this is old. The, the letter of Philippians was probably written sometime around the mid-50s to early 60s. So just think about that. Like, the letter was written 20 to 30 years after the events of that first Easter. That's not very long. And if this thing's already familiar to churches... Right, this, this creed, he, he can quote it knowing that they're going to be familiar with it. That means it's been circulating for a while. It's already out there. So that means this thing is like OG. It goes way back to the beginning. Some of the earliest convictions of the church. It's a bit like Lindsay and I going back to our apartment. <laughs> it's this chance for us to sort of reconnect with the earliest convictions, the earliest beliefs of the church, it's something that we need. I don't know if y'all feel this way, but it's like there, there's like Jesus and what Jesus was about and what the, you know, the first movement was about. Then there's like 2,000 years of stuff that's just kind of getting packed on that. And sometimes what we need to do is get rid of some of that stuff because it isn't very helpful. Can I get an amen on that? And so I think, man, being able to come back to something that is this early, this essential, this core. And you know what today is actually? Today is the day of Pentecost. Did you know that? The church calendar. Today we celebrate the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit was unleashed and this ragtag group of people flipped the world upside down. I can't think of a better day for us to go back and remember what is it that made this movement so radical in the first place. I'm, I'm, I am desperate to get back in touch with that. I know there's lots of talk about how the church is done. Church isn't done. I think we're in the midst of another renewal movement right now. I think we're unlearning some things that we need to unlearn, and we're getting back in touch with some things that we've forgotten along the way. And at the heart of this hymn is probably one of the most central truths we got to stay in touch with. That's where we're going this morning. You all with me? Can I pray? And we'll get into it. God, we need you. We need you. We need you for more than just being entertained on a Sunday morning. We need to be shaken. We need to be reminded of what this is that we're a part of, what we said yes to. Because the world needs us to be that. Our neighbors need us to be that. You need us to be that. You haven't given up on this world. Help us not to either. And this morning, I pray that you just remind us what it means to be Jesus people. To call ourselves Christian. Help us to get a sense of what that actually means. In its truest sense. Lord, get me out of the way. I pray that anything I say that's from you, I pray that it lands. I, think, I pray that anything that I say that's not from you, that you just blow it away. We need you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. Whew, sorry, that song got me all, all worked up. It was good. It's good this morning. Let's go, let's go back through the text, yeah? Chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open them up there to Philippians 2. It'll be up on the screen, too. But verse 6, this is how the hymn begins. Speaking about Jesus... It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
So Jesus, in some mysterious way, is equal with God, is God. Jesus reveals to us what God is like. That's what it means to be Christian, right? Being Christian doesn't mean that we just believe in a God and Jesus has something to do with that. No, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. We take our cues from Jesus. But here's where it really begins to get interesting, kind of gives us some more details to this. It says, when it says that, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That phrase, used to his own advantage, in the Greek is just one word. It's a great word. You ready for this? Harpogmon. Isn't that great? Sounds like a lip fungus. Got a case of harpogmon, right? This word, though, it means uh, to snatch, to seize violently. To take a hold of. I mean, what comes to mind for me immediately is what happens when there's like one Oreo left in the sleeve at our house. I'm talking about, oh, that's mine. Like, that's snatching. That's, sne- that's seizing. That's, that's harpogamon. It means to take and to hold onto. And so Jesus did not consider his equality, his oneness with God, something to be grasped, something to be seized, something to be held onto. We know all about harpogamon, don't we? kind of how things tend to go in our part of the world. It's like from the time you're born, you're taught, how do you get ahead? You grab, you kick, you claw, you do whatever it is you got to do. What what do we call it? A rat race, right? Or you got to climb the ladder. All that matters is you get to the top. Doesn't matter who you got to step on or what you got to do to get there. We know all about grabbing, don't we? And seizing and taking and holding on to, but Jesus didn't do it that way. Jesus didn't consider his equality, his oneness with God, something to be grasped or seized or held onto. But instead, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that phrase, he made himself nothing, in the Greek, it's this word kenosis. Y'all say kenosis. This is often known as the henosis, the kenosis poem, or the kenosis hymn. But it means to evacuate or empty. It's this, ex- it's this expression of self-givenness. Basically, it's the complete opposite of harpogmon. And so sort of tie all of this together, right? Jesus, his divinity, his oneness, his equality with God, it was not demonstrated or revealed through harpogmon, but through kenosis. It was put on display, not in what he would take or hold on to, or by what he would lay aside, but he would willingly give up and let go of. I feel like it's so easy for us to miss the power of this. Like for a lot of people, they read it, and it's like it sounds like, okay, Jesus was up there in heaven with God, all that glory. He's the glory guy. He's getting it all. It's great. It's wonderful. But for a time, he put all of that aside. He put his divinity aside. He became a human, and he died on the cross. But then after that, he went back and sort of picked up his divinity again. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not about Jesus letting his divinity go. It's about Jesus showing us what divinity actually looks like. N.T. Wright's one of my favorite, he's my hero when it comes to understanding the New Testament. He's, he's believed to be the sort of most renowned New Testament scholar of our day. You kind of have to be, right, when your first name's N.T., which is initials, right? 
you kind of have to be a New Testament scholar, but he was the first one to open my eyes up to what this text is saying, what it's actually getting at. Here's what he says. He says this. This is what it means to be equal with God. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. God is the God of self-giving love. I mean, so often the cross gets made to be all about appeasing God's wrath. And we've talked about this before, right? It's sort of like God is holy and God is perfect, and we aren't. We all know that. But God can't tolerate imperfection. Somebody's got to pay. But thankfully, Jesus stepped in, and he took the beating for us, right? Now, now listen, Jesus dying for our sins, taking on our shame, that is definitely a part of the gospel. It is. The fancy theological word is atonement. Jesus' death does atone for our sins. That is a part of the gospel. But a little while after the Reformation, 1500s, when the Protestants broke away from the Catholics, right? A little bit after that, this idea of atonement went from being part of the gospel to being the whole thing. It's the only way we understand it. But I would argue the cross is less about appeasing God and it's more about revealing God. It's Jesus showing us who God is and what God is actually like. And I just got to say, until this shocks us, until it sort of confounds us and scandalizes us, we don't get it. We're not getting it. Until, until we really feel it land and we're like, what? Until we get there, we're not getting it. I mean, this is, this is utterly foolishness to how our world thinks about power and greatness, isn't it? It's completely upside down. I mean, this isn't how, uh, how people thought about the gods in the first century. I mean, the gods, they look like Zeus. They look like Arnold Schwarzenegger fling, flinging lightning bolts at everybody. The gods were meant to be feared. But into all of this, Paul comes talking about a different sort of god. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he kind of offers some commentary on this creed, on this hymn. And I love it because you, you can kind of feel in this passage sort of how the, the, the rest of the world sort of understood this idea of Christ crucified, of God revealing God's self through, through the death on a cross. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Jews demand signs. They want to be impressed. They want to be blown away. Show us something big. Do something amazing, right? And Greeks look for wisdom. It's got to make sense to them. It's got to be rational. Uh, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those of us whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Essentially, Paul is saying Christ crucified is the wisdom and the power of God. I know it looks foolish and upside down, but this is how God is putting the world back together. One of my favorite pastors and leaders, a guy named Brian Zahn, I love what he says about this passage. Lean in for this, because this, this is it, y'all. It says, for Christians living so far removed from the first century, the depth of this scandal may be hard to grasp. We've got to understand, your hero being crucified would be the last thing a Jew or a Roman living in antiquity would boast about. And yet, the early Christians did boast about it. Paul readily admitted that this was foolishness to Romans and offensive to Jews. But Paul also said it was the power and wisdom of God, contending that God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And here's the part. Read this with me because this is something. Paul, don't, don't read it out loud. But just stay with me, right? This, get this. Paul doesn't mean that when God is weak, God is still stronger than human strength. 
So like if I'm wrestling my kids, right? I'll tell you what, I'll tie my right hand behind my back and I'm still strong enough to beat you. That's not what he's getting at. That's still a conventional way of thinking about strength, right? That wouldn't be scandalous. That would just be a, a typical boast about conventional power. Rather, Paul is saying that God's power is weakness. Think about that for a moment and you will realize that such an assertion is still scandalous today. We are fascinated by conventional power. Power to purchase power to enforce our will, power to kill, and we are put off by any form of powerlessness. But it is precisely the powerlessness of God enacted by Jesus on the cross that saves the world. Man, get that. Christ crucified is the wisdom and the power of God in a world obsessed with harpagmon. With snatching and grabbing, the first Christians came sharing the good news of kenosis. They came saying, let let me tell you about a different kind of God. The gods you are used to, they only know how to win. This God knows how to suffer. Your God shaped the world with fear, flinging lightning bolts. This God shapes the world with a cross, with self-giving sacrificial love. For the first Christians, the cross wasn't just an isolated event. But it was the revealing of the very nature of God. It was a revealing of how things actually work. Tony Campolo, you ever heard of Tony Campolo? He was a professor, a sociologist. He was a pastor. He's an incredible thought leader for the church for a really long time. And he used to tell this story. He would tell the story a lot when when he would preach somewhere. But he had a speaking engagement. This is how the story goes. He had a speaking engagement in Honolulu, Hawaii. Tough gig, right? But he, he's from the East Coast, so the time change was just a mess, and he wasn't sleeping. So in the middle of the night, he wakes up, it's like 3 a.m., he can't sleep, he's hungry. So he goes to try to find somewhere to eat. The only place open is this little grubby diner, right? So he walks in, there's no tables anywhere, it's just one of those diners that has like a bar, you know, with stools on it. And he sits down, right? The cook comes over, asks him what he wants, he's like, I'll take a donut and a coffee. So while the guy's getting him his food, in walks in about a dozen prostitutes, and they all come, and they just sort of sit next to Tony. And they just start talking. So here he is, Tony, with like 10 to 12 prostitutes. He's a pastor. He's a preacher. He's there. He's speaking at a church the next day, right? And he's hanging out with some prostitutes. And one of them sitting right next to him, she starts talking about how the next day is her birthday. And about how she's like never had a birthday party before. He overhears this, this sort of conversation. They kind of chat for a while, then they all leave. But Tony got an idea. And he called the cook over to him, and he said, hey, what was that girl that was sitting right next to me? What was her name? He said, well, that's Agnes. He said, well, do you know, tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. And she's never had a birthday party before. So I kind of got this crazy idea. What if we decorated the diner? Did they, they come in here every night? He's like, yeah, they come in here every single night. He's like, well, what if we decorated the joint? What if you made her a cake and we invited her friends? What if we had a big party for her right here in the middle of the diner? Well, the cook, cook loved it because he knew Agnes. She came in like every day. Every night she was there, and he even said to Tony, she's like, listen, I know, I know what she does isn't, isn't great, right? This isn't something you want, but she's one of the good people in town. Let's do it. Tony said, okay, I'll get here early. I'll decorate the place. You handle the cake. Let her friends know, okay? So the next night comes, 3 a.m. Tony gets to the diner. They decorate the place, and that place is packed full of every single prostitute in Honolulu. They're all in the diner with Tony the preacher, Right? And a few minutes later, in walks Agnes, and everybody in the diner just screams out, happy birthday, Agnes. And Tony says her knees buckled. 
and she couldn't stand. They had to hold, put her put their arms under her shoulders and walk her over to the stool where they, and they were singing to her happy birthday. And they bring out this cake and they put it down in front of her and she's crying. She can't even blow the candles out. Somebody had to blow the candles out for her. And after they get done, they go to cut the cake and she said, wait, wait, wait. I know this is weird, but can you wait? Can you hold off on cutting the cake? She said, this is my first birthday cake. And I would love the chance to take it home and show my mom. She lives right next door. Can I just, I just want to go over there and show her this birthday cake and they'll come back and we can eat it. And I'm like, sure, you can show your mom your birthday cake. And so when she leaves, Tony said the diner just was silent. Nobody knew what to do. Like, what do we do? We're just kind of hanging out here. He's like, what do I say? And he's, he asked everybody, do you all mind if I pray? <laughs> and so he prays with this diner full of prostitutes at 3 a.m. in Honolulu, Hawaii. And when he gets done praying, the cook looks at him and says, hey, you said you were a professor. You're not a professor. You're a preacher. What kind of church do you preach at? And I love what he said. The kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in a diner. And he goes, ah, no, you're not. He's like, I'd go to a church like that, right? These stories move us, don't they? That's just one. I could tell you so many other stories. But when you hear about people doing things like that for other people, they move us, don't they? They they stir us up. Why? It's because they're true. It's because they're they're, they're pointing us to, to how things really are, or at least how they should be. Yeah, we're, we're familiar with Harpogmon, aren't we? That's how things usually go. But in our core, we know that kenosis is a better way. And stories like that, they, they move us the way they do because they bear witness to that. And keep in mind, Paul says that this is to be our mindset. Remember talking about that a couple weeks ago, that word, right? In Philippians, he uses it over and over again. It's this Greek word phronesis. That's meant to be our mindset, our lens, This is meant to be the way we filter the world, how we see things. We're supposed to see it through a cross-shaped lens. I mean, everything is meant to be influenced by that. How we understand God is meant to be shaped by Christ crucified. How we enter into relationships with other people is meant to be shaped by Christ crucified. What we believe about how the world should be made right should be shaped by Christ crucified. Are you with me? All of it. This isn't just something we're supposed to think about God. It's meant to influence the way that we interact with other people, the way we are in the world. Church, how are we doing with that? Like, really, how are we doing with that? You know, this is, I wasn't going to go here, but I got, I got time. It's like, this passage is the most, one of the most hotly debated passages in the entire Bible. Did you know that? You start getting into church history, you start looking, oh my goodness, people get nasty over this one. I mean, divisions that even even have caused bloodshed in the church over this passage. Because it starts off by saying Jesus is equal with God. Right? That's been hard for people to wrap their brains around. There's been a lot of disagreement about how equal with God. Right? Like, how equal is Jesus with God? And then it says he emptied himself. And they argue, well, what did he empty himself of? How much of a, we argue over this to a point there's actually been people killed over disagreements with this. John Calvin, most people don't even know this story, one of the reformers burned a guy alive at the stake because he didn't believe that Jesus was eternal. How messed up is that? Particularly when the passage begins with, in your relationships with other people, be like this. Kenosis, self-emptying. You see what happens when we get away from this? 
If your understanding of God does not look like Jesus on the cross, it's not Christian. It isn't. If the way you treat other people doesn't look like Jesus on the cross, it's not Christian. If your politics and the way of ordering the world doesn't look like Jesus on the cross, it's not Christian. If the way you read your Bible doesn't reflect Jesus on the cross, then it's not Christian. Are you with me? We're gonna, there's so many implications from this hymn. We're going to have to circle back to it in our next series. We're doing our relationships, like romantic ones. We're going to do a whole series on dating, singleness, marriage, all of it. This, this right here has a lot to teach us when it comes to how we enter into our relationships. We'll come back to it. But, but there's a part of this text that I really felt led to just sit with all week. You know, when you're teaching a text, you want to explain what it says, right? That's what a teacher does. I'm going to teach you what it says. You know what a preacher does is they share with you how it's speaking to you. There's a difference there, isn't there? How it speaks to you. And thanks to the Spirit, text is always speaking. And, And the thing that I couldn't get away from this week was this tone of inevitability in the passage. The certainty of it all. Do you feel that in it? I mean, this thing has quite the finish, doesn't it? I mean, Susan, you got emotional just reading it. It ends with this big crescendo. It builds to this big crashing ending. Like after talking about how Jesus humbled himself and was obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross, it goes on to say this. I mean, feel it. you got like your snares are going right here. Like things are just starting to build and build and build. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear the inevitability in this? Do do, do you hear the certainty? God has made Jesus Lord. And that means if Jesus is Lord, guess who isn't? Caesar If Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. This is what got Paul in trouble, y'all. I mean, the Romans were incredibly tolerant when it came to your religious beliefs. Think whatever you want to about the gods, about heaven, about life after death. You are free to worship any way you want. But when it comes to who's Lord here on earth, there's only one of those, and it's Caesar. That was the way you greeted people in the first century. Caesar is Lord. You'd go to the amphitheater, whatever it was, and there'd be a show. First thing you would do is you would acknowledge Caesar as Lord publicly, which meant that Caesar's way was the way to order the world. This is how things get done. But these first Christians had the audacity to insist, no, Jesus is Lord. The way of ordering the world around violence and greed, it's all a sham, and it's on its way out. But Jesus' way of serving and giving, it's the better way. And it's only a matter of time before everyone bows down to that sort of power. It is only a matter of time before everyone recognizes that Jesus' way is the better way. That's a pretty audacious thing for them to affirm, isn't it? I mean, think of where is Paul right now? He's in prison, and he's insisting that Jesus is Lord. From where Paul's sitting, that doesn't look very true to me. You got chains. Whose chains are those, Paul? Really? Jesus is Lord? Or think about the Philippians. This is a pretty audacious thing for them to believe. When you do some reading about the city of Philippi, the Caesars had this 
sort of habit of populating the city. They would, with, with military veterans, people who won wars for them, they would give them land and property in Philippi. They would give them tax breaks and special rights, right? So Philippi, they like Caesar. They like the way the world is. It's working for them. This is great. And so these new Christians come talking about a different Lord, a different way of ordering things. That's a threat to them. Because how things are, it's working great. We looked at this. If you go back and read Acts 18 when Paul's there, Paul gets into trouble because he liberates a girl who's possessed by a demon that people are profiting from. It's liberation. It messes up their income. And they throw them in prison for it. Are you feeling this? And so now things are starting to get hard for the Philippians and Philippi. Because they're insisting on this different way of understanding God, different way of ordering the world. Jesus is Lord. And yet, in the face of all of this, they stayed true to it. They stayed true that they believed that God's kingdom had burst forth, that something new was happening, that things were changing. And from where they sit, that didn't look very true. But from where we sit 2,000 years later, they were right, weren't they? They were right. There's even evidence of it in the text. Dylan got to nerd out on you last week. Can I nerd nerd out on you for a second, real quick? So two times in chapter 2, Paul mentions the word humble. Did you catch that? Right? Earlier in the passage, he tells people, you know, in your relationships, be humble. Right? And then he even references Jesus in the hymn. He humbled himself. Right? In verse 3, Paul says, in humility, value others above yourselves. In verse 8, speaking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Paul's mind... Humility is a virtue, right? Something that we should fold into our lives. You've got to understand, this is a radical new idea at the time. And you get into uh, ancient Greco-Roman uh, ethics. Humility was not seen as a virtue. It was seen as a weakness. It was associated with failure and shame. Instead, if you read through their ethics One of the highest virtues is what they called philotomia, which means the love of honor. Which Aristotle the Great, you know, the great Greek philosopher said that honor and recognition are the greatest things one could achieve. Basically, do a bunch of really big stuff and then brag about it openly so everybody sees how great you are. That's kind of how they did it, right? You want people telling you how awesome you are, how great you are. What's wild, though, is that now, 2,000 years later, if you were to ask people, what are the five most important virtues somebody should have? What's one of them they would name? Humility. Right? Let's try that again. (laughs) Patience, sure. But, I mean, how many people will say humility is important? How do we feel when somebody goes around bragging about how great they are? There's something questionable about that, isn't it? We think something's up with that. Y'all, that is the influence of the Christian movement. I I was reading about this actually from a secular historian who was just recognizing this. This past week in this study that she put out. And this is how she wrapped up the study. I thought it was pretty amazing. So my point is not that Christians alone can be humble. Dear Lord, we know that. Rather, as a plain historical statement, humility came to be valued in Western culture as a consequence of Christianity's dismantling of the all-pervasive honor-shame paradigm of the ancient world. Listen to this. Today, it doesn't matter what your religious views are. Christian, atheist, Jedi Knight, that's great. If you were raised in the West, 
you are likely to think that honor-seeking is morally questionable and lowering yourself for the good of others is ethically beautiful. Now listen to this. This is the influence of a story whose impact can be felt regardless of whether its details are believed. People who don't even believe it are still shaped by it. And this part was powerful. A story about greatness that willingly went to a cross. Our culture remains cruciform, cross-shaped, after it has stopped being Christian. Do you feel that? These people in the midst of a world that didn't value humility, that thought you want something, you take it. You step on people's necks. You grab it up. You gobble it up. These people began to insist that there's a better way. And it looks like Jesus on the cross, who didn't take it but who laid it down. And y'all, 2,000 years later, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you've been impacted by this. God hasn't given up on the world, y'all. We can't either. I mean, the first Christians believed that God had started something new, real, good in the world through Jesus Christ's resurrection. It was understood to be the beginning of a new world. Not somewhere else, but right here. Right here in the middle of this one. The resurrection established Jesus as Lord. It proved that his way of life, his cross-shaped way of life, was the better way. See, so many people think the resurrection cleans up a bad thing. That's not what it does. The resurrection reveals a better thing. It vindicates the way of Jesus. That's what the resurrection does. It's not like, oh, Jesus tried to do something and he failed, but you know, God came in and give you a mulligan. Try that again, right? You're resurrected. No. The resurrection says this way is more powerful than all the other ways. The way of washing feet, the way of serving the hungry, the way of caring for the poor, the way of giving yourself, the way of recognizing you don't have it all together and you need God to put you back together, right? The way of love is victorious. That's what the resurrection declares. And that's what it means to be Christian. It's people, can you imagine how different things would be, y'all? I mean, the cruciform way of thinking about God means that God loves you. Period. You don't bring the sacrifice. God did it. What if you knew you were loved? Like really. What if you knew? What if you? What if you knew that? Like really knew that. Man, what, what if that's the way that we we actually interacted with other people? Can you imagine? So I just feel these Christians insist that Jesus is Lord. It's only a matter of time. Before every knee bows to that. You know what that is? That's hope. Isn't it? That's what hope is. And here's why I felt, felt this. Whew. Last few weeks, huh? I mean, last two and a half years, let's be honest. But the last couple weeks especially, I'm sick and tired, y'all. I'm sick and tired of hearing about people being killed. Lots of people being, are you tired? I'm tired of it. I'm so tired of it. It's senseless. You know, I'm tired of all of the fighting. We can't even talk about it. We can't figure anything out. Everybody just, I'm sick of all that too. You sick of that? I'm tired of it. And so hope sometimes feels like it's on short supply, doesn't it? It's a lot easier just to give in to cynicism or despair. But to be a Christian isn't to insist, no, no. We live out of this conviction that despite how things seem, bad things aren't the only things that are happening. Good things are happening too. And in some meaningful way, the future is going to be better than this. That's what it means to be Christian. 
to be people of the resurrection, to be people of this cruciform sort of God. Because the truth is, bad things aren't the only thing happening. You know that. Over the last two and a half years, I've had more meaningful conversations about stuff that actually matters than I've had in my entire life. I've met people who are doing amazing things in communities that are out there trying to make things better. I didn't know about them before all this. That's happening too, isn't it? So my, my challenge to you is this. There's basically two ways of looking at the world. One, you can look at it all right now and say it's all just going to hell. Or you can look at it and say it still isn't heaven yet, but it's on its way. My question, which is the better way? I know which way I'm going. Which way is the better way? Which way is actually brought good into the world? Which way is actually move things forward? It's all going to hell or it isn't quite heaven yet. Which one? And when you feel that way, when you feel yourself overwhelmed, do me a favor. Practice some kenosis. Do something good for other people. Something. Some act of self-givenness. Doesn't have to be big. When Paul wrote this, he didn't know he was writing the Bible. He was writing to encourage some friends. And look what God did with it. Reminds me of my wife a few weeks ago. She knows I'll do this. Teachers asked the parents just to write notes for students during testing, right? These kids that uh, just to have notes from their parents that are encouraging them. So Lindsay did that, but then she started thinking about what about kids who maybe aren't going to get notes from their parents? And instead of just feeling bad about it, you know what she did? She wrote notes to other kids, and she got other people. Some of y'all do that with her. That's kenosis, y'all. <laughs> so we think about other people, and we, we, we lower ourselves in order to lift them up. We do something for someone else. And so in the midst of all of this, the heaviness, man, jump at every chance you get to practice some kenosis, yeah? But here's how I want to finish, because I, I want this to be who we are and what we trust what it means to be Christian. I'd love for y'all to just read this passage back through one more time with me. Can we do that? In fact, why don't you stand up? It just feels like out of honor for what this is and what it means. Let's read this together. Philippians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. Starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. We're going to sing one more time together. Sing that song again. It's great. And there is true joy and his freedom. So open your heart and receive it. There is a hope to believe in Jesus. Jesus. 
There is true joy and his freedom. Open your heart and receive it. There is a hope to believe in. Jesus, Jesus again. There is true joy and his freedom. Open your heart and receive it. There is a hope to believe in. Jesus, one more time. There is true joy and his freedom, true joy. Open your heart and receive it. There is a hope to believe in. Jesus, Jesus, listen to the free man trust that even now in all sorts of ways that we can't understand, you are putting things back together. We want to be people who trust that. We want to be people who are transformed by your saving love from the inside out. And we're people who can't help but live it. That's what we want to be. People who take on a cruciform way of life. Who choose like countless people before us. demonstrate a better way, a different way, even if that makes us look foolish, especially if that makes us look foolish, because that's a sign we're doing it the right way. Rescue us from all of our grasping and clawing and taking and make us people of kenosis. I pray that your spirit falls fresh on us as a community, because the last thing we want to be is just another Sunday morning show. We want to be a movement of people. declare that you're Lord 
not just with our lips, but with our lives. So rescue us in all the ways you've got to rescue us. Set us free. And then make us slaves of hope, of love, of compassion, and generosity, and grace. We need you. We thank you for not giving up on us. Help us not to give up on each other. It's in the resurrected name of Jesus we all pray. Amen. Happy Pentecost Day, church. Thank you so much for coming. We'll be here next week.